Here is, I think, where people get confused with life insurance loans. They look at it as it's their own money they're borrowing, but they're not. People talk about life insurance, infinite banking. They say your money's growing, compounding, and you're only paying simple interest. I have never seen it. I, I'm gonna say that it probably does not exist. Yeah. I even wrote this in my book. So here's like my acknowledgement of uh, the mistake that I made. Why are you all in on whole life and so adamantly against index universal life as it, as it relates to permanent life insurance? I could buy a whole life policy, borrow against it, and play in the marketplace. And that, to me, would be safer than using an indexed universal life policy. Well, that's like probably the number one question I get is, Caleb, when should I use my policy? When we add the element of time, we can't use grade school math anymore. So now then our, our handheld calculator or whatever else just doesn't work anymore. Hey guys, it's Caleb Williams. With hey, I have the pleasure of uh, inviting back a friend, Todd Langford the founder of Truth Concepts. I, Todd, I've said this every time I get to have you be a part of what I'm up to, whether you're speaking at an event or on, on a podcast with me. Um, I My conviction and competency skyrocketed after being introduced to you, going to Truth Training, watching your videos, and I'm just forever indebted and grateful for the work that you're doing. And uh, I'm excited to have you on. We're going to be talking about all things life insurance, truth. We're going to be talking about compound interest, amortized interest, and simple interest. And if you're rolling your eyes, that's because um, you should be. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that and and all kinds of other things. But I just want to welcome you to the show and uh, just see what's what's new with you and your world. Thanks. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, watching what you've done and your ability to go and and push the truth out there is it's it's amazing and. Um, you're able to do it without stepping on toes and hurting people and getting us in a place. You know, I think it's for all of us, the getting together and trying to seek truth. I think it's one of those things. It's almost like the horizon. There are pieces of it that we get, but we get new data. You know, there was a time when, I mean, think about it for computers for just a minute. The, everything when I started in the computer industry was all GIGO, right? It was garbage in, garbage out was the the acronym. And it was this idea that only computers could only do whatever you programmed them to do. So it was just a regurgitation of something somebody had actually put in there. And then this idea of AI, well, that's impossible. That could never happen. And look where we are. So now then computers are starting to think for themselves a little bit. And so there's truths at, at certain points in time, but because of technology and other pieces, those can shift. Well, how do we know that happens unless we collaborate, unless we're really seeking what is the truth so that we can pull those extraneous pieces that maybe they we didn't see them as being part of the puzzle or part of the formula that now become a critical piece. And so we always have to work with each other to keep seeking that, that horizon, right? Yep. Two things I want to say. One thing is like the reason I don't hurt people and I step on their toes is I don't weigh that much. Okay. So that's, that's, that's what we got to look at the pros and cons. And that's just the honest truth is like, we're, we all have our different uh, ways of going about it. And I just happen to be light. The second thing is um, when it comes to competency, I feel very like when I first got in the space, people are, you know, talking about how you be more confident and they're like giving you all the raw, raw training without the actual, like, what are you actually doing? Are you actually doing the right thing? Because funny thing happens when you're actually serving people and you know you're serving them well like you're not nervous uh, and and so 
I believe competency creates confidence. And if you are a financial professional, if you sell life insurance, if you're a financial advisor, whatever you want to say about yourself, if you help people with their money and you do not know or using truth concepts, I would highly encourage you to check them out. We'll have a link down below. They have a YouTube channel. I actually did a reaction to one of the most impactful videos, uh, Max Potential, and I'll have that down below. But I just, again, I, I really want to acknowledge you in that because of uh, like I, we as, as Better Wealth have served hundreds and thousands of people thanks to you. And that's the perfect example of what you're saying is the ripple effect and the collaboration is yeah. you're not on the front lines meeting with people day in and day out, but it's because of what you do that allow people like me and our company to be able to do that in a powerful way. And so thank you for that. And then the last thing I want to say is when we when it comes to humility, I think that's vital in the space. And we're going to be talking about a subject. Um, uh, we're going to talk about lots of things, but I want to get right to the point. And this is, this is the point that a lot of people are making in the infinite banking world. I hear it in the velocity banking world. And I just hear it just out there when people are talking about mortgages. And it's this concept of compound interest, simple interest, and amortized interest. And let me just give the premise of this. What people will say, and I even wrote this in my book. So here's like my acknowledgement of uh, the mistake that I made. And so it's not always meant to be misleading. But the concept is people are like, use the phrase that compound interest is better than amortized interest. And, and the point that they try to make is if you could compound at 4% and you look over 10, 15, 20, 30 years, your number is going to continue to grow. And it's, the, it's a beautiful thing and it's just math and it's an amazing, it's exponential. And what they say is if you look at a, someone paying down a mortgage, like a 4% mortgage, you see that the interest rate is way less. And so you could say that a 4% compound is better than a 4% mortgage. And like you should compound your money, i.e. put it into life insurance and use a 30 year mortgage. And like you can you can use that those math pieces, which are deceptive, which we'll talk about to prove a point. Now, I still stand by you should fund life insurance and not pay off your mortgage fast faster. But but that still isn't right for me to put things in the in the book that um, weren't weren't accurate. So I'm actually rewriting the book in certain sections. And that's mainly the the only reason is so that I don't indirectly continue to promote something that is not true. Because I've heard many people talk about compound interest, amortized interest, simple interest. And internally, I roll my eyes, but I was once there. And, and so I know I'm saying a lot, but I want to set the stage for you to kind of take on the why is this so misleading? And what should we be saying in differently going forward. Sure. So what you're talking about is difficult for the average person to get their head around because really, so if you go back in time, when you were in grade school, everything was about right now. Two plus two is four. Three plus five is eight. All that's true when everything is about now. When we add the element of time, we can't use grade school math anymore. So now then our, our handheld calculator or whatever else just doesn't work anymore. We have to have a financial calculator to be able to include the time value of money whenever we go beyond a day, really, right? And so everything happens. And so when we look at interest, and that's why interest is so misunderstood, and I think it's to the advantage of the financial institutions that it's misunderstood because they know how to use it, right? And, and some of the things they say to us aren't exactly right, uh, especially when it comes to mortgages and other things. But the idea of opportunity 
which really is a function of time value of money, right? Most people can see that going into the future. Like if we compound out an asset, as you said, so we have money in account, we see it grow, we understand, hey, it's growing faster and faster. It's actually exponential, not linear on its growth because we're earning interest on our interest. And as that interest gets bigger and bigger, it's more and more. And so it's the curve is actually rocketing upward. What's hard for people is to realize that costs are just opportunity with a negative in front of it, right? It's going the other way. And when we have time, the same thing that pushes stuff up in the future also pushes stuff down exponentially from a cost standpoint. And so what we often see in analysis and financial analysis is the application of the time value of money in the accumulation of assets, but the costs that are associated with that, usually that part is left out and people just add up all the pieces, even though it's over 30 years or however long. And, and so, so those are two different things. It's comparing apples and grapes. I mean, they're not even in the same category, right? They're completely different. And yet that's where people are getting their analysis from. And it's the same thing that happens in the example that you gave with the amortized schedule. And so people are, they're compounding an account, say at 4% and looking out there in the future of how much it grew, taking advantage of the time value of money and that exponential curve. But then when they look at the flip side and say, well, what about the, the, the debt side? They're taking the cumulative interest and just adding it together instead of understanding that, no, when we took that interest out of an account, it lost exponentially. And, and where it's really hard to make that leap for a lot of people is because they're not taking it out of an account. They're taking it out of income. And what they don't realize, taking it out of income is the same thing as not putting it in that account and getting that other growth on it, right? And so those have to be analyzed together. We need to compound both situations. And when we do that, we're going to see that the difference is, is uh, not what people have been told often. And that falls into the simple interest side, too. What is your definition of opportunity cost? Because I believe that's going to open up a door for us to flesh this out a little bit more. Sure. So, and and I, just making up some numbers for just a minute. Um, if if I had, um, let's say term cost for just a minute. Well, term is one of those things that we never expect. We don't want to collect on a term policy, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because that means we died prematurely, most likely, the way term policies are put in force, right? And so in the best possible situation, term is going to be pure cost, right? And let's say that term insurance is $1,000 a year, and it's a 20-year level term insurance policy. And so over 20 years, we could say, well, that costs us $20,000, but the reality is, if we took that $1,000 a year out of an account, the account is going to be more than $20,000 less than what it would have been had we not pulled that out of there. Why? Because when the $1,000 came out, there was no interest on it earning the rest of the time frame. It didn't take advantage of that exponential curve. And so what happens is that's where opportunity comes in. And so we lost not just the $1,000 for each year of term insurance, but we lost the $1,000 plus the exponential curve on the interest that now we've also thrown away. And so the cost is much bigger than that. And in financial math, that has to be part of the equation to be accurate. Yep. I think they, and that's been one of the biggest epiphanies uh, for me 
is every decision that I make doesn't just has a cost today, but has a, a lifetime or generational cost. And I think it's just one of those things where if we take math out of it, I, how cool is it if you can just be thinking about the decisions you make today, the inputs that you make today, not, are, not only are going to affect you today, but will affect the next generation. And I think sure. uh, that there's some powerful concepts to that. But when it comes back to the math equation and going back to the mortgage example, on one hand, you're factoring in opportunity cost in the compounding section. You're saying if you had this money over here and it was compounding and you're adding everything up, you're assuming that they're, that it's compounding without interruption. And that's, that's great. It's like, there's nothing wrong with the math there. The problem is when you look at the paying down the mortgage, your interest rate might stay the same, but now you're, if you just look at the interest that the bank would get, it's, it's smaller and smaller each year because your balance is getting smaller and smaller. What we would have to add a separate account to that, that is earning an additional 4% or whatever assumed rate to recapture that 10, 15, 20, 30 years of, of growth. Because if we don't, then we're not actually factoring in opportunity cost. So on one hand, you're factoring in opportunity cost. The other, you're not factoring in opportunity cost. That's why you're, you're looking at apples and grapes. Right. And, and, and see, I think where it's easier to see, most people understand the impact of, say, netting an account when we're talking about taxes, and it's, it's similar to that. Um, and a lot of times the banks will encourage you not to net. In other words, don't take money out of the account because the account will grow faster if you don't pull money out to pay the taxes on the, the earnings on the account, right? And so people pay the taxes from another pocket somewhere, and they lose focus of, yeah, but that money came out of the opportunity to earn something in another place, right? It's the same thing. So ultimately, it is all net. But I think when you do that, when you take an account and you pull dollars out of it, and you show that, you actually are able to see the impact of opportunity costs. Because it's going to show you that the differential between doing it and not doing it is way more than just the cumulative dollars. And that plays yep. the same way on amortizations. And amortizations are an interesting thing with mortgages because, you know, some of the language around um, mortgages has been this idea of you pay all the interest up front, right? And so people think that mortgages literally are structured in such a way that you pay all interest and then you pay principal on the back end. And it's, it, that's not what happens. It's just a mathematical difference in the balance. It's all based on whatever the balance is. And you have a larger balance at the beginning of the mortgage. So yes, a higher percentage of the payment is going to be interest, but not because of some magic structure inside of the mortgage, right? Or whatever loan it is. The, I, I'm going to just hammer this. I have a couple different examples, but there's there's a common strategy out there. It's, they, they pitch it like this magical thing, and it's just if you make an extra payment on your mortgage or if you pay twice, two mortgage payments in one month, then you get to pay off your mortgage faster and you just accelerate. And, and people pitch it to be like this like magical thing. Talk to me why there's nothing magical about that and why they're also missing opportunity cost in their, their equation. Yeah. And, and, and you nailed it. It's missing the opportunity side. See, all they're doing is adding more money to the payment. Yes, it will pay it off faster. All of that is true. And you're going to have less money to put towards investments or whatever, or savings or anything else on the other side, which may be okay. You know, if we're just putting it in place, that's earning 0%, you know, from a pure mathematical standpoint, maybe it makes sense to go that route. I would argue that there are better places to do that. But, but the point is, 
it all looks great because people say this is magic. You paid the mortgage off in 10 years rather than 30 years. Yeah, but you put three times as much money in it up front. So that's just yep. a, it's just a function of what's going to happen. You're paying down principal, so you have less interest that's being charged. But again, you have less money on your side. And if you're not accounting for it, that time value of money, that opportunity, then it looks like it's free. Like, right? I just paid it off without any effort yep. on my part early. <laughs> yep. I'm going to give one more example. And I'm hammering this because I see I'm on TikTok a lot more than you, Todd. I, I, I see a lot. All right. Uh, and I, just, I see this over and over again. And I think we just need to set the record straight. What I hear a lot is when people talk about life insurance, infinite banking, they say your money's growing, compounding, and you're only paying simple interest. Yeah. And I get what they're saying because you're, it's an interest only loan. And so there's some flexibilities and some benefits that can come with that. But why is it misleading to say it's simple interest? Because what I've learned from you is everything compounds. And with that, share that. And then, and then if you could, then could we talk about the benefit of an interest-only flexible loan versus not? Like I think we need to acknowledge some of the benefits. But this concept of you saying you get compound interest, but you only pay simple interest is something, again, that I've fallen victim to. Like I've, I've shared things that things have come out of my mouth that have said that in the past. And I get why people are saying it, but I also think it's totally wrong and misleading. Sure. So, and again, it comes down to interest rates and it's a little hard for people to understand, but here's the basics of what simple interest supposedly is. So simple interest is this idea that you're paying interest, but you don't pay interest on your interest. Okay. I, I have never seen such a loan, ever, where any, any, any leftover interest was not charged interest on as the loan goes forward. I'm not going to say that it's impossible that it, there's nothing out there that is that. I have never seen it. I, I'm going to say that it probably does not exist yet. <laughs> okay? So here is, I think, where people get confused with life insurance loans. So... Half a percent, let's, let's, let's do it this way. Let's say we've got a 6% annual loan. If that meant the compounding period was every month, if it was half a percent a month, that's more than 6%. Okay? So half a percent a month would end up actually being more than 6%. But if you added half percent 12 times, that's 6%. And so people will look at that and say, well, if I'm charged half percent a month, that's 6%. But it's not. And on your bank, anytime you take out a loan, I would encourage you to look at the APR page, right? Yep. Bank has to put out an annual percentage rate page. And it will be less than the, or sorry, it will be more than the sum of the payments, of the monthly payments. And the reason is, is because each of those half a point compounds each month. Yep. And so it has compound interest each time so that the annual is more than that. And that's why the bank has to put out the APR to say, if you paid annually this amount, this is what the rate would be. And it's going to be a different number than the sum of all those compounding periods. Okay. So now fast forward to life insurance and the rate that we get from an insurance company is the APR. So people in their mind automatically call that simple interest 
And that's, I think, where the disconnect is. And it's, it's, it's incorrect because if you don't pay the interest, then you're going to be charged interest on the interest at that rate. But if the insurance company is telling you they're charging 6% as their loan rate, that's the APR. It means that each of the compounding periods is less than that time frame divided by the, those number of days. So if they were saying it was 6%, then you're being charged less than half a percent a month on that loan. And so people push that to mean, oh, that's simple interest, but it's not. And one of the other arguments on the life insurance side is, yes, but if I pay my interest each year, then they're not charging me interest on the interest. So that makes it a simple interest loan. No, it structures a compound interest loan. Let me put it this way. If I pay my interest on my credit card every month, are they going to charge me interest on my interest? No. So does that mean my credit card loan is a simple interest loan just because I choose to pay the interest each month? No, it doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, every loan is a compound interest loan. Whatever interest is there, you're going to get charged interest on that interest if it's not taken care of. And so that's just the way loans work. So this idea of simple versus compound is not there, but the APR that the insurance company charges, that is the actual APR. Or comparing to a credit card, a lot of times people will say one and a half percent a month. Oh, that's 18%. It's not. If you do the math, it's actually 19.6, somewhere along in there. Yeah. And if opportunity cost wasn't a thing, we could probably get away with that. But just like you said, everything compounds. And so if you don't pay your life insurance loan next year, your interest is going to be higher because it's not just the original balance, but now they've tacked on the interest to that. And if you do pay that interest only, well, what's the opportunity cost of what that money could have earned? It's just going to pay the interest and and you're not factoring in over the next 15, 20, 30 years what that could have earned. And so I appreciate you sharing that. We're, we're going to chop that up and that might just be a, that might just live on our Better Wealth channel. And I'm going to just point people to that all day long if I hear that, because I, I do think uh, there's some powerful things. I know that you're going to be coming and speaking at an event that we have in June, and I would love for you to have us a little section on that, because I think that that will really move the needle with so many people. Anything else that you want to say as it relates to that versus we can start talking about different things. I just, that was one of my like selfish endeavors is to make sure that we could talk about this because you're one of the only people I know that can articulate in a way that's um, not just fluff. Well, like I say, it, that's a difficult place, right? Um, I, I have done, you know, hour-long meetings on how interest rates work, not just not just with um, the general public, but with advisors as well. Even though they're in that business, it's still a hard thing to grasp. And the the interesting thing is, there are those that know how to how it works. And, you know, the Federal Reserve, they know how that works. They know they use that differential in interest rates to make crazy amounts of money. And and we see it as very small differences, say going from 5% to 10%. Well, that's only 5%. No, it's 100%. And, and, and that is a hard thing for people to, to get. And so it's, a, it's an interesting place. And yeah, I'd love to do a, a section with the math there where people can actually see yeah. how it really works because it's hard. 
Yeah, you don't have your sidekick uh, in in today's interview, but it's like it's even more powerful when you see things math. And so we'll make sure to keep keep all of you guys in the loop as it relates to us creating more content. Um, question question for you, and it, it has to do with you have a, a section that again is a mind blowing when I learned it about how banks make money and markup right. on money. And the example I'll use is, is if the bank is charging one percent to to you know paying for high yield savings accounts and then they're loaning your money out at you know four percent what kind of rate of return are they getting on that money and it's like their investment is not the hundred dollars that i deposited their their investment is a one dollar that they had to pay me that year to control my money and now they and get they loan out my money to you and you pay back four percent and so they made a 300 percent return on that equation that that was really big for me and you made a point there you're like that's why in your belief interest rates have to stay low um and and now we're seeing interest rates be high with the federal reserve everything that you know to be true about banks printing money our national debt which we're carrying a lot more interest on like what do you think is going on and is there anything that you want to do from a, fleshing that out, like from someone who wants to take advantage of opportunities? I'm not asking for financial advice or predictions. I'm just saying, like, are you kind of shocked where we are with interest rates? And do you believe because of that math, interest rates have to come down just because of how banks and the Fed work? Yeah, it, we're already seeing it, right? Mortgage rates are starting to turn back down again. You know, we saw them. We saw a 30 year mortgage rate like 7.3 a few months ago. And now it's like 6.3. So they're seeing what the impact is on on people's psyche and how they're they're stopping that flow of money as a result of the interest rates being too high. Because what happens on the bank side to maintain the kind of profits they are, they have to really widen that spread. And so it's a lot easier, like the example that you gave, most people, when they hear, oh, the bank's paying you one and they're they're subletting that money out to somebody else at four, they're making 3%, right? Just the difference between one and four. And people are okay with that. The reality is it's much more profitable at the low end for the banks with those small differentials. Because like you said, that's a 300% profit, right? And, and so because they don't have any money in the game outside of the rent cost on those dollars, and it's something that we as consumers, if we could just understand that, we could apply that same thing to our lives. We could act like banks in those situations and understand that arbitrage between rates. When that rate gets large, so if we go, uh, think about this, like when we saw CD rates um, back in the 80s that were, you know, actually- When, when you saw CD rates fairly. in the 80s, I, I was in a thought back then. So yeah, let's, yeah, let's uh, set the record straight. Yeah. Some of us, yes. <laughs> Um, when when Todd saw, and his time in the 80s were buying CDs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 in order to maintain those profit ratios, if CD rates are at, at 10%, they're going to have to be charging 40%, okay? The, and it's still the same profit from the bank standpoint, from a, from a ratio standpoint, but we would see that difference, right? It becomes more obvious at those higher rates because the bank has to really widen that spread and if we don't understand interest rates, um, we see that as a totally different situation. And so at the lower rates, the banks really, I think, have a bigger advantage um, just because people don't understand them. So big, big picture is you, you see rates 
coming down for the macro reason of um, the banking institution, the Fed, and the cost of the national debt all are way cheaper when interest rates are lower. Yeah, they, they're they're making more money as a percentage, and that's what that's what we have to understand. It's not it's not the spread; it it is the ratio of interest rate to interest rate that makes the difference. Yep. And, and we can see that if we break it down into dollars, and that's what people don't do. So so let's think about this a little differently. Just in that same example that you had there of the one percent and four percent. Yeah, let's let's look at it. Um, if we base that on a hundred dollars for just a minute, then what we're talking about is one dollar to four dollars, right? So the bank, the bank can rent my money for a dollar. They rent my hundred dollars for a dollar and sublet it to you for um, one hundred and four dollars. Basically, is what you end up paying back. So from the bank standpoint, they invested a dollar to get four dollars. Wait a second. Now we're not talking about percentages we can actually see what the profit is. And if we're any retail business and we can buy widgets for a dollar and sell them for four, we don't call that a 3% markup, right? That is what's going on. And the financial institutions are marking up money, but they're doing it with interest rates and people don't understand how that relationship works. If they would put it in dollar amounts, you could see it. But again, that's just not what people are wired to do. Yep, that's so good. That's so good. And that that has really helped me have understand like how borrowing against your life insurance when to borrow that's like probably the number one question i get is caleb when should i use my policy and it's actually such a simple question to answer but it's but it's sometimes so simple it's it can be confusing and then i confuse it even more because not everyone's threshold should be the same but the the idea is if it costs me, and I use, I don't know if I got this from you or if I made this up, so I'm not taking credit for something that I, I may have learned from you, but I just called it control cost. Maybe this is something that you've talked about. And it's like, if the bank's cost of control in that example is 1% or $1, if I am using money from a credit union or using money from my insurance company or borrowing money from my parents, whatever the cost, whatever the interest rate is, is essentially the cost of me to control that capital. And right. and so if it's going to cost me, you know, $5 and now I'm using that money taking on risk to earn 4, well I just lost 20% on that equation and there are people out there that are teaching because infinite banking has compound interest, you can do whatever you want and you're winning because your money's compounding and unfortunately the math doesn't doesn't back that up. And so what I've what I've just really encouraged people is whatever whatever the co cost of controlling your money is that is like the that's like the baseline, and know that that is the ultimate like w whatever you use your policy for know that like if it doesn't e get that or more like you're technically mathematically not ahead so you have to understand that there's a cost to everything that we do which I love that because when you use cash there's a cost but we don't always see that right. opportunity cost kind of goes out the wayside. Um, and then the thing that I do that complicates things more is just because you can earn maybe more than 5% doesn't mean you have unlimited money. So make sure that whatever you do with your money is the the right thing. And what I would rather do, and this is where I, comp this is where I confuse people, is I wouldn't use my money to earn a couple percent spread, even though the math backs that up. Because I want to I be able to say yes to the home runs or the crazy great relationships or the business opportunities. 
So for that's just my investment philosophy. That has nothing to do with math. It's just I, I want my value for control and opportunity is a lot higher than maybe some other people. I just, I just probably confused every single person that's watching this video. So why don't you say it in your own way? But I just wanted to give you like my philosophy when it came to when you should borrow and kind of my math is number one. And then number two is what's the cost of, of control for you or what's the value of control when it comes to what you do with your money? Sure. So this is a great subject because uh, there, there's a difference between the pure math or the pure economics and the real world. Right. And that's really kind of what you're speaking to here. And I think if we don't understand the pure economics, then it's difficult to make that next step of the real world. So we need to start there. We may violate the pure economics just from a com for a comfort level or other things. And that's OK, as long as we understand that decision we're making. Right. And so um, as an example. If from a pure economic standpoint, we really want to go to the cheapest money, pure economics. That's all I'm talking about. I'm not talking about trying to destroy the Fed or, you know, any other philosophical pieces. But if it's pure economics, it's going to be go to the cheapest money. If, if my insurance company is charging me five and I can get it from the bank at four, that is a win over going to the life insurance company, right? It's going to be the cheapest place. There's no magic in the loan being at the insurance company instead of being elsewhere from a mathematical standpoint. Now, there may be some other differences, and we'll go into that. But from a pure economic standpoint, it's always going to be the cheapest interest rates. I, so at the last truth training that we did, a good friend, Gary Pinkerton, he brought up a great um, analogy. So are you familiar with the game Uno, the card game? Yeah. Yes, very familiar. Yeah. Okay. So... With Uno, just briefly going over the rules, whatever you're, you're trying to get rid of all the cards in your hand, right? And that's the goal. And each time you play, there's a number and a color on your cards, right? And whatever's up on the pile, let's say there's a blue six that's up and you have a four in your hand, you could play the four or you had a blue two, you could play the blue card on top of there and you're trying to get rid of cards. If you can't play from your hand, you have to draw one. So now you've got an extra card in your hand. There's an exception to that, and that is the wild card. The wild card can play on any other card, and you get to determine what the color is for the next person, right? So you get to declare it. All right. Life insurance is that wild card. When I'm in a situation where my bank is willing to loan me money, and I take that side of it, I always have that wild card hanging out there. But if I use that wild card in situations where the bank would have done it, and now I'm in a situation where the bank won't do it, I put myself in a risk standpoint. Even if the bank is charging me more, depending on the situation, I may use the bank's money first because I know I have that wild card hanging out there. Something we talk about in prosperity economics, it's, it's funny, we have two principles that seem opposite, the principle of certainty and the principle of uncertainty. And you say, well, those are just opposites to each other, but they're really not. And, and the idea here is certainty is boring, right? It is boring, boring, boring. And people like excitement in their life. They like uncertainty. They get on roller coasters, right? But what happens is when we have that certainty asset, that wild card, that life insurance cash value that we can always access, it unlocks 
the uncertainty and makes those uncertainty things that we do more certain. They add, they turn it into opportunity instead of gambling. And, you know, we were talking earlier and this idea of, well, if I put money in real estate and I put everything in there and it works out, I hit a home run. But what if it doesn't? Okay, well, I've got trouble. And are there likely things that are going to change when we introduce time? Have we seen times when rents were um, high and all of a sudden nobody is renting? I mean, all these things, even though it looks good on paper, if we're caught in one of those time frames and we're short on cash, we've got problems. But if we have that certainty asset over there, now it unlocks that and it gets us through those tough times so that now then all we see are, are the upside. So certainty assets unlock uncertainty, spice of life, those things that we want to do. And going back to the roller coaster analogy, it's like you get on a roller coaster because you like the, the fun and all that, but you always put the seatbelt on, don't you? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, this is really, this is really, really good. And I appreciate the Uno example. We actually play a game called spicy Uno, which is Uno, but just throw out the rules and add a bunch of spicy rules to it. <laughs> and what's interesting is the, the, one of the best ways to win uh, I'll, I'll use this example. You sign a card when you win. So you get to see over time who's who's the person that plays their last card, um, you know, wins. Oh, and wow. almost almost everybody holds on to wilds at the end because it's if you're sitting with one card and and it's like people want to try to like crush you and you want to be able to give yourself as many options. So there will be people that end up drawing or taking other people's cards. Instead of playing their wild, in 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 yep. pure mathematics, it'd be better to play my wild and get one step closer to going out. But you're better off taking more cards and holding on to the good good stuff. And that's just like that's a common strategy. And so when you were talking, I just took that to the next level because um, you know wilds are such a strategy as it relates to Uno. And the same thing that goes with your life insurance is I 100% agree. I would take higher cost money for the opportunity because number one i have money in my policy that i can utilize to pay off other debts so in my head it's like it just gives me another option but if i have an amazing opportunity in a business no mortgage bank is going to give me any type of money so if all my money is tied up in my home because i'm paying off and i'm being my own bank now I'm, I cannot say yes to that opportunity, but I, I don't like that opportunity of not being able to say yes. I at least want to be able to vet and say like, Hey, I'm going to take, I'm going to take some uncertainty, but I'm going to say yes to this versus not having the option. So I just think the value of optionality is so important. And every single one of you watching this, it, you might value that different. So what Todd and I are not saying is hard and fast do this because the math is a really good baseline, but it, ultimately opportunity cost is not the same for everybody. You have to be able to measure what your 10, 15, 20, 30 year opportunity cost is with your time, with your relationships, with your resources, with your skill sets. And, and so it's while, while it, it can be frustrating, but it's also like one of the coolest things when you start understanding opportunity costs and then applying it to your own life. Anything else that you want to say before we jump into the exciting topic of life insurance? No, I just think this is really a critical piece that a lot of people miss. And so 
it, you know, for some people, it's going to be a letdown. It's like, oh, I'm not going to my life insurance policy. No, it should be exciting because what it's done is it's secured all these other things so that you sleep better at night. And like you say, you're in a position to take advantage of a potential home run if it comes along because yep. your money's not all tied up. And so even though you may be paying more in interest rate with the bank than with the insurance company, there are times when that's an optimal situation from, again, the real world, not from the math, right? Yep. I want to cover two other things. I don't know if you have a hard stop of the hour, but we'll try our best to get this get this thing knocked out. The first question I have is as it relates to internal rate of return. And I've been on a kick lately. People talk about arbitraging. They, they make it sound like you're making more money in your policy than what you're using it. And that's just, in my humble experience, that's not something that we should be promoting, especially if you're talking about whole life insurance. So I want to talk about internal rate of return and the hard truth there. But then I also want to stretch our brains and say, okay, if we factor in other factors, like the fact that life insurance, when set up and used properly, grows tax deferred and can be used tax free and gets passed on income tax free. And when we look at other things, like it comes with an increasing death benefit, whereas in a different scenario, you would have to pay for that. And you have things like chronic illness riders, and you have other things like privacy and other areas. My question to you is, can we walk through a scenario where we could say that life insurance gets a an equivalent to an eight, nine, 10%. And can can we say that while also saying you don't get arbitrage when you look at the pure math? Um, so I'm I'm kind of setting you up uh, with a complicated, you know, set, but I but I really believe like this this is when I learned from you probably helped me understand life insurance better than anything else that you talk about. You use the funding calculator to kind of walk through this concept. But for me, it like there's epiphanies that happen and it, and it grew my conviction for a boring old life, whole life insurance because of certainty, but because I ultimately understood internal rate of return and I valued it way greater than whatever the illustration showed me. Wow. That's a, that's a bunch of stuff. And so I'm going to go through <laughs> and, and, and try to, I think where I want to start with is explaining what internal rate of return is and just seeing, um, so work on this piece. But the cool thing about internal rate of return is it applies opportunity cost automatically. And, and so what's cool about uh, uh, internal rate of return is you can actually compare two different assets and their growth that even have different cash flows. But the IRR will tell you what the return is based on what you've put in with opportunity associated with it. Okay. And so the way internal rate of return works behind the scenes is the computer actually takes all the cash flows and what the end future value is. And it calculates, okay, what happens if I apply 2% to all that? Oh, nope. It was short on the money out there on the end. Okay. Let's apply 3%. Oh, that's more than that. Okay. Let's apply two and a half. And it works on that until it finds a number that is level for all those payments, ins and outs, to get to whatever the future value, which might be zero or it might be a large number. And that's the way internal rate of return works. It's always looking for a level amount, not just in the first year or somewhere in between. So even though the earnings across the time frame may have had ups and downs and everything else, the IRR finds out basically what rate level every single year would get you to that end goal with those cash flows. So it really is a levelizer if you can understand that. This is the downside of it. 
it's hard to understand when we look at it with a life insurance policy. In fact, um, I encourage a lot of times for advisors, don't put that on your illustration because you're going to confuse the client unless you spend a lot of time explaining to the client and why. Because you're going to see negative annual rates of return up front. And then it, as, as policy goes on in time, you're going to see higher returns than what the IRR is showing. And the reason for that is, again, the IRR is looking for a number that solves for every year being the same. So if we have low numbers, negative returns on the front, then the, the policy annually has to earn higher than that IRR number on the back end so that it has the equivalent of earning a certain number all the way through. And that's a hard thing for people to get their head around because what they see is when they look at an IRR, well, the IRR in the first year is minus 50%, but the IRR in the, uh, say, seventh year is 1%. Well, I had eight years before I ever get positive. Well, but when you get positive, you got positive for every single year prior to that too. It's the equivalent of earning that the whole time frame, And so that's what we have to keep in our mind as far as IRR goes. And so it's an important piece to see. When we look at IRR and the true IRR on a life insurance policy, and think about it from the insurance company standpoint, and, and you know, we're talking about mutual life insurance companies, right? Where the basically the policy owners are owners of the company as well in some portion, and they deserve a dividend from the profits of that insurance company. If the insurance company is charging less on money that you're taking out of there than they're paying you, then the insurance company is not going to stay in business. You, can't, you know, have, well, they do it in volume. No, that, that still won't work, right? So they, they have to earn more than what they're paying out. And so when we look at it from the standpoint of a loan, and I think this is where people forget because they look at it as it's their own money they're borrowing, but they're not. Their life insurance policy is just collateral. And so it's put up as collateral, which is why the life insurance policy cash value still gets a dividend. It still gets paid a dividend because you didn't take it out. You borrowed money from the insurance company. Well, when you borrow money from the insurance company, they had to take it out of the pool of money that they're doing their investments with. And that would impact all of the other policyholders if they had less money in there to earn dividends. So what does the insurance company do? They charge interest, which needs to be at least whatever they're earning in their portfolio. And that's got to be more um, or the, the earnings, the, the charge, sorry, on the loan has to be more than what they're crediting you in dividends. It's, it's the only way that that will, will work overall. And, and that's what they're doing. So the idea of arbitrage, it, it really, there might be certain timeframes when that happens, but I yeah. think it's the separation and people are trying to look at comparing their cash growth to their loan growth. And I would encourage people to separate those two out completely. And what I mean by that is we've got a safe liquid asset in the form of life insurance cash value, right? We can ask, it's got reserves behind it. It's got all these pieces. So it's a safe liquid asset, which really applies to savings vehicles. It's not an investment from that standpoint. It's really a savings vehicle that we could use to buy an investment as, you know, our earlier examples. But when we look at it from that standpoint, that's where the comparison needs to make. What is the growth in here compared to other like assets? 
checking account, money market, CDs, those kind of things, right? And so it's it's certainly better than that. And we don't have to pay tax on it annually. And there's no management fee on that piece. That number that we get from the insurance company, from the IRR, is net of all of that stuff, right? And so, so we're looking at a pretty substantial number, even at that point in time. When we look at the loan, the loan shouldn't be compared to what we're earning any more than a loan we have at the bank. We compare that against our savings account, right? It's, it's compared to other options to get money. That's what we need to be comparing it about against, not against the cash that's in there. Those are two separate issues. I beautifully said, I mean, you, you took a impossible question with like 10 questions in it and really appreciate how your brain works. I, I want to use an example and this is a, an example of an illustration that I ran for, you know, a 36-year-old. And so this is just for illustration purposes only. I'm not saying that every company is a little bit different, but it had an internal rate of return at the end of 30 years at 4.5, okay. which is a great, which is a great internal rate of return, especially over a year ago. You know, as interest rates yeah. rise, we might see things. This might be more common. It might not be. The point is, what you're saying is that's like it's earning 4.5% every single year, even including the beginning years where you, if you look on an illustration, it looks red. It's not that it's finally earning. It's assuming that you're earning that every single year. That, that's correct? That's correct. So how, how could it do that? That means in that 30th year, it's earning way more than four and a half percent so that it's the equivalent of four and a half every year, even those negative years. Right. So then, so right, right there, if we just compare it to like assets, and again, this was ran over a year ago. And so what, what other savings accounts, high yield savings accounts, they wouldn't be over over 30 years, even even if we compared today and we actually said, what does the next 30 years look like? It will, it, whole life insurance, when set up and used properly, will trounce those rates of return. I think everyone would agree there. But, but the reality is we're not even comparing apples to apples because if you're, if you're comparing it to a high yield savings account, you're, you're, there's certain things that you have to pay like IE taxes. So the high yield savings account, what would the high yield savings account have to earn if you had to pay taxes? And this, I'm getting this exactly from you. I think the and asset came exactly from you because you've talked about this as an and, as an and, as an and, but using your math at 30% at a four four and a half percent internal rate of return. Now you're looking at something over 6.4% that you have to make every single year just to keep up with the boring old life insurance. And, and it's because the, in the life insurance policy, it's already factoring in that it's a tax free rate of return. Whereas in a different asset, you have to factor in taxes. Anything that, did I butcher that? How, how do we say that? No, no that in was a, good. I would, I would adjust your language a little bit. It's a tax deferred asset. The way it's really, classified life insurance is tax deferred but it becomes tax free if we die with it at the end and it pays into our into our heirs so we have some 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 tax strategy around it but it is considered really tax deferred as far as the asset but we're not paying tax on it annually so yes you're right on track and that's where that comparison needs to be is when we look at all those pieces but there's another piece there right do we get other things with the life insurance policy Yes. 
like a death benefit, right? Yeah. That yeah. if we went the savings account route, we'd have to buy term insurance to protect our family. So now then that's an additional cost that if we saw what happened, if we took term premiums out of that other asset, now then you're pushing up the return to who knows, seven plus on what you'd have to earn just to keep up with the life insurance, not to beat it, but just to keep up with it. And, yeah, and then it a lot. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, go, you go, you go. I was just going to say, and, and then what a lot of people say is, well, okay, so I can't do that with the savings account, but I can do that in the market. But understand, if now we shift to the market, now you got to add management fees in there. So if you're adding two points to a manage, of a management fee, now you're having to earn you know, somewhere around 9% every single year just to keep up and you're going to lose the death benefit because that term insurance is going to run out versus the whole life being in place your whole life. And so, you know, that keeps going in that direction. But is there something else you want to say on that subject? before yeah, I, I just ran the, for this example. And again, this is just for an example, sure. educational purpose only a four and a half percent internal rate of return when you factor in a 30% tax, a 1% fee. And then I just looked at the cost of insurance that the person would have to pay in term over that, those 30 years. Right. And we're looking at a 10.69% every single year. And so the point that I'm trying to make and you're making is we're not saying that life insurance, whole life insurance earns almost 11%. That would be incorrect and would be misleading if I said that. But what I am also, what I am saying is if we com actually compare this apples to apples to a like asset, this is a more accurate number just when we're comparing the rate of return to other like assets. Right. It's not that the life insurance is earning that, but what you are saying is you would have to earn that in a like asset to compete, to, to keep up with it. Right. That's and, correct. and so here's, what's interesting about that 10.69. Is that what you said was the yep. number? Okay. So at 10.69, some people would even say at that 10.69, well, the S&P's average 12, so let's forget about the safe liquid aspect of it. I'm going to hold it for the long term, so the ups and downs are going to hold me, are going to hurt me. I, I can do 12% 12 uh, 12 every year, so that beats the 10.69. This is the part that's left out of that conversation. What people remember is, A, the S&P, the best of the best, and if we look at like Dalbar, we, we see that mm, that's not what really people are doing, but... Um, but everybody wants to talk about it, but there's another component that's even more uh, detrimental to that account is, and that is that people carry bonds to balance that fund for the ups and downs on the equity side, but they don't put that into the equation. And so, you know, looking at a 12, just rough numbers. If we, if we thought we could do 12% in the S and P all the way through, and we were doing a 50, 50 split between bonds and at 4% and that 12%, then what we're doing is somewhere around 8% overall. So that weight of those, uh, of those bonds that we have to have to support the equity side actually makes 12% turn into 8%. And the life insurance policy is outrunning that. And we're not saying that life insurance needs, should be compared to investments. It shouldn't. It's a savings vehicle, right? But it is interesting how closely the return relates to even, you know, what people expect to do elsewhere. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's well said. And the, another way to say this is 
you can utilize your policy to put money in the market if you have so much confidence in the S&P. And if that's the thing that you decide that you want to put your money into, there's a world where you could put money into life insurance and get all the benefits that life insurance gives you and have the right to be able to go and have that money compound. And as long as you're earning more than what you're paying the insurance company for the right to borrow their money, you you technically on paper are, are ahead. Any any thoughts on that? Or would you caution people to do that? Or what what, what do you see the pros and cons of, of doing something you know, like I, that? I, I think there's some pieces out there. So Garrett Gunderson, um, one of his um, talks is about investor DNA. And I think that's an important piece. You know, what we're talking about is the pure math in this, but if investing in the market isn't part of who you are, it's yeah. it's not a good idea any more than real estate or anything else. It needs to be something that's part of your DNA um, to make those decisions. But I think that's a critical point is think about those two examples. If we have the life insurance that's doing that great rate of return, we can still put money in the market or real estate or somewhere else because we have access to that cash. If instead we start with an or asset, the real estate or um, mutual funds or whatever else, that's one dimensional on those other aspects, assets. So how do we get to those funds? You know, we don't know what the market's going to be. You, you could argue, well, we could liquidate that and go buy something else. But what if it's in a time during that average, the market's down? Well, you certainly wouldn't want to do it then. And yeah. so by doing it the other way around, not only do we get that great return over time, but we're in that and position of taking advantage of opportunities that come along or get us through emergencies that come along. And the emergency side is important, you know, going back to the to a black swan idea. How many people made money when we saw the crashes in 08 and 09? The people that were holding on to cash? Yeah. And we're able to buy in those time frames. They, they made out like bandits. You hear about all the destruction that happened. There were a lot of people hung out to dry. Why? Because they didn't have that and asset. They didn't have that wild card out there to get them through that time. Yeah. It, it, I think our friend Gary Gunnarsson said it well. Money didn't vanish. It transferred. You're right. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's really yeah. gets you started thinking about, you know, 2008 was a horrible time for not everybody. Some people, <laughs> some people look back on those times and are very fond. And it's and and R. Nelson Nash talks about this concept of the golden rule. I think it's well said. It's those who have the gold make the rules. Right. And I think another it's a, another way to say it. Do you, do you have time for one more question, or do we need to wrap this up? I'm good. So la last thing, I, I want to have you back on you and Kim on, and we can talk about distribution. I think there's some really cool things that you're working on, and really being ar able to articulate. The future, I know you guys don't like the word retirement. I use it because that's the thing that most people think sure. of. But like in the future, future cash flow planning, whatnot, um, I would love to have you on and us do like a, a boring old case study. But I know our audience will eat that up with the math. So that's an invite. We'd love to make that happen. But what I want to ask you is around index universal life and whole life. And there's a there's a big debate going on in the world and lots of people that are have very passionate views on either side. And I think you have a very definite, unemotional point that it can be made when it comes to should you use whole life or index universal life and the pros and cons. And I would love to just have you share your perspective. You're not you're not a spring chicken. You're not this is not your first year in the industry. You've seen a lot. 
um, and and like you've seen cycles. And we're also not selling life insurance as a sexy investment. So I think when people that hear our message, they're already understand and it's not a big deal, but like there's still like for people that don't understand this concept of a safe and asset and all the things that we talked about, there's this shiny factor that index universal life is. And, and there's a lot of people that are flocking to it to sell it and to, and they would say invest in it. And I just want to hear from you why it, that could be damaging. And if we took a step back, why are you all in on whole life and so adamantly against index universal life as it, as it relates to permanent life insurance? Okay, great question. So, so here's the, the, the big picture. There's, there's lots of pieces to it. But I, I think the main thing is, so Norman Baker, my mentor, told me something 30 plus years ago that I always remember, and that is there are no deals in the insurance industry. And, and, and what he meant by that was everything is a trade-off between cost and risk for the insurance company. And let's take that an extreme. Why is term insurance so, quote, cheap? It's not really cheap because we hope to not collect on it, so it's all cost. But the premiums are very inexpensive compared to whole life premiums at the other extreme, right? Why? Because of the risk for the insurance company. When the insurance company has somebody go through underwriting and they know their health and they give them a term insurance policy, it's very unlikely that the insurance company has any risk of that person dying in the time frame that they have the term insurance. Whole life on the other extreme, the insurance company is on the risk all the way out for their whole life. The premium is higher. Okay. And so those are those extremes. Now we take universal life and it doesn't matter if it's indexed. It doesn't matter if it's interest sensitive or variable in the marketplace. It's a different product that people have said, and I quote, it's whole life for half the price. Well, it, it can't be that because the insurance, the only way the insurance company can charge less for it is if they have released some risk in some form along the way. And typically that's going to be in the form of the policy will lapse before somebody can use it or before somebody dies or those kind of things. And so it's not the index that's the problem. And the index is the sexy part. People say, oh, I get to invest in the market. But if that's really what I want to do, I could buy a whole life policy, borrow against it and play in the marketplace. And that to me would be safer than using an indexed universal life policy. And the second piece is when we look at just the index side, people say, well, I get to experience only the upsides of the markets and none of the downsides because it's got a zero floor, say in the particular policy they're looking at. But that zero floor comes at a cost. And the cost is a cap on how high it can go. So even though the market may do 12, 15, 20%, that cap on the other end might be that the insurance company only credits seven, eight percent on the, the top end. So while they cap the floor, they also cap the top. And what's interesting in running some numbers and just looking at the pure growth, like in the S&P, with those caps and floors, the variable policy would actually outperform. Even though it had the negatives, it was able to take advantage of the upsides. It would outperform inside of those caps. 
Well, the variable policies saw trouble staying in force all the way out. And if they did, and now we've potentially got a reduced amount, I don't see how the indexed ones can make it out there to the time frame. And so now somebody may put money in there all along the way and find out it's not going to get them there. And there's a couple of issues that are there with that. It's the lack of guarantee on that end. And if we go back to the beginning of our conversation and we talk about certainty and what it allows us to do, it allows us to unlock uncertainty assets without taking on a huge amount of risk because we have that. If we don't know for sure that that life insurance policy, that potential wild card, if we don't know for sure it's going to be in place to cover those other things, then how can we leverage that? How can we take advantage of that? Because what if that universal life policy isn't there to lean on? With my whole life policy, the fact that I know it's going to happen, and I I like to use an analogy, if you knew in the future you were going to win the lottery, would it change how you spent money today? Yes. Okay. With my whole life policy, I know what it's going to do in the future. It's guaranteed to happen. And if I outlive it, then I get it. So if I live past 120, I get the death benefit even though I'm still alive. It's going to happen. Well, if I know that, I can use actuarial advantage, leverage, and leverage that against what I'm doing today, against other assets and other things. I really can't do that with a universal life policy safely. Um, and there's arguments that, well, if you watch it really close and you see what it's doing and make sure everything's timed just right, and when it gets a little off base, add some more money. Okay, do you really want that kind of stress in your life with what's supposed to be the certainty asset? That's the whole point is taking stress away, right? Yeah, I think I think if we, I that was beautiful, and I appreciate you articulating the way that you articulate. I think if you're if you're looking at index universal life as an investment alternative. That's that's like there's not certainty when you invest. It's not 100% certain there's a chance of loss. And ch- technically, that chance of loss could be lose everything. I think so. I'm with you. It's like if you want to go play that route, great. I think the math would say, and this is where I would agree with all the TikTokers on the other side that all hate life insurance. It's like don't mix your investments and insurance together because you're not going to get a great result. I actually agree with them. I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But if yep. you want to do the index universal life as like your investment and you've done your research and that's great. Awesome. But the big problem that I've heard you articulate and it's really makes sense to me is if we call this permanent insurance, which is not an investment and should last our entire life. And now you create something that looks more like an investment than a permanent, safe, certain asset. You give everyone a bad rap when you're 80 years old and now you're, you're, at risk of losing everything in this permanent insurance policy, which majority of people are like, how is permanent life insurance not fulfilling on their promises? It gives everybody a bad rap. Whereas in reality, they hijacked the benefits of permanent life insurance and tried to soup it up to be something that would get more people to invest or pour money into it. And so I don't know, like I just appreciate the way that you articulate things because um, for everything that you laid out, that's why, um, why would you want to create a foundation of something that maybe has a little bit more upside, but also could freaking collapse. You can't build a foundation. You can't build a building on a, on a 50, 50 foundation. Like we wouldn't want to stay there. 
Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. You know, I asked a question and I asked the wrong question at your um, last event last summer, right? And my question was, what does permanent mean to you? And it was with somebody who was supporting the universal life side. And they gave me the technical answer, which was correct. And that is the reason it's classified as permanent is because it's guaranteed renewal as long as you have enough premium to put into it, right? So as long as you can pay the premium, then you can you don't have to reapply for it. You don't have to go through underwriting. Term insurance, on the other hand, like 30-year term insurance, you'd have to go through underwriting again to reinstate it, right? So that's why they call it permanent. My question should have been, what does the public think permanent means? And what public thinks permanent means is it's going to be there forever. And that cannot be said for universal life. And that's where the problem is. And and you probably, because of, of your age, haven't been on phone calls. We've had people because of, of just being out in the marketplace. Some people say, oh, we'll, we'll call them and see. This just couldn't be true. Somebody literally, we've had several of these, maybe husband and wife, husband's in the hospital. The wife is calling on the phone, literally saying, my husband is, the, is in the hospital. We do not know if he's going to get out or not. I just got a notice from the insurance company and they're telling me this universal life policy is going to lapse tomorrow. It's supposed to be permanent. Can they really do that? Even uh, we didn't sell it and we have to deliver the bad news and say, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I know that what your agent probably implied was that it was guaranteed to be there from now on. And the truth is it's not if you live too long. That's tough. Yeah. Somebody's put money in there. And you think about the long term. They did without a cabin in the woods with the family. They did all these things to be responsible and ensure that they weren't yeah. going to be a burden and other things. And now they find out it's not going to pay out in the end. Yeah. That's tough. I don't, I don't yeah, want to be if, able to do that. If you're going to use some of the talking points that we used, especially as a foundational asset, make sure that it's actually a solid foundation and not, uh, a speculative hope hope asset. So, Todd, thank you. You were extremely generous with your time. We talked about um, more than I could ever imagine. You took all my three minute questions and and made sense of them and and created um, a really really beautiful conversation. And I look forward to getting this chopped up because I think there's there's little pockets of brilliance. And I, and I look forward to getting this out to the marketplace. We, I appreciate you. Thank you for everything that you do for this industry, for this profession. And, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in person in a couple months. Same here. Thank you for all you do. Appreciate you getting the message out there. That's, that's the way we're going to change things, right, is educate people. And so this is a, this is a path to get that done. So thanks for allowing me the time uh, to talk about it. It's my passion. All right, guys. I have, I have links down below, a link to your YouTube channel and also the, your website. And I would highly encourage you, if you're a financial professional, to check out Todd Truth Concepts. There's a lot of exciting things to come uh, for this new year. So just stay tuned. And with that, have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.